Okay, welcome everyone to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. We're seeking, as always, to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics and scholarship so that you can be fully equipped in all your evangelistic efforts. And today is no exception. We've got an interesting guest here. My guest is Abdu Murray. Now, most of you are looking at saying that doesn't, that sounds like a Muslim name. And I say, yeah, it probably is, because my guest used to be a Muslim, is now a Christian, in fact, a Christian apologist, and how he got there, that's an interesting story in itself. But we're talking about his book today, The Grand Central Question. Now, Abdu is the president and co-founder of Embrace the Truth, which is an apologetics ministry dedicated to engaging non-Christians with the credibility of the gospel in ways that touch their heart and mind, and he equips Christians to do the same. Yet, for most of his life, he was a proud Muslim who studied the Quran and Islam, but after investigating the historical and philosophical underpinnings of major world religions and views, he found the Christian faith was the one that withstood the most challenges. And, as a result, he gave his life to Christ. Now, he's spoken in numerous venues, both in the U.S. and internationally, including universities, churches, training centers, and conventions. He hosts Embrace for Truth, a radio show heard on WLQV AM 1500 in Detroit and worldwide on the internet and podcast. He's also an adjunct apologist with Robbie Zacharias in National Ministries and is a visiting professor of Christian Thought and Apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And he lives in Detroit, Michigan with his wife and their three children. So, Abdu, welcome to the show. Nick, it's so great to be on the show, and it's wonderful to actually talk with you in person uh, after uh, some sort of digital exchanges between the two of us. So thanks again for having me on. Yeah, that that is a benefit of getting to do a show of ads, that getting to interact with so many people on a regular basis. And I hope it's beneficial for the audience who might not necessarily get to hear the people they read a lot of times. Oh yeah, it's it's one of the joys of um, uh, of doing radio, but also doing these speaking engagements where people who've read your stuff or whatever mm-hmm. it might be say, "Oh my goodness, this is I hear your voice finally," or "This is what you look like." Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really one of the joys of uh, of uh, the radio, and then also meeting people in person. So, uh, but once again, Nick, it's uh, it's a tremendous uh, blessing to be on your show, and uh, really been an admirer of yours for some time now, and the good work you've been doing, and um, the uh, critical nature of the, your, your your thinking abilities, and. And just really glad to have you on our side. Well, thanks for saying that. But check will be in the mail for all of that, by the way. <laughs> now, um, tell my audience, if they're not familiar with you, how is it that you got to be where you are? I mean, some of us will be saved when we talk about Islam and Christianity later on. But give us a brief introduction right now of who you are. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, um, Abdul Murray is one of those sort of like question-begging or question-starting, I should say, uh, names. Abdu and Murray, how did you get a Lebanese and Scottish name? Uh, the last name is not really Mid'ai, uh, Murray, it's really Mid'ai, and Mid'ai is how you say it in Arabic, but when my, when we came over on the boat, essentially, they said, what's your last name? And we said, Murray, Mid'ai, and they said, okay, Murray, and they changed it for us. So now I'm Lebanese and I'm Scottish, which means I like to fight everybody. Um, but uh, I was raised in a... Um, in a, in a Shiite Muslim home. Um, most folks know the difference between the Shiite, or they've heard of the differences between the Shiites and the Sunni Muslims, the Sunnis being the majority and the Shiites being the minority. Um, and, and for the most part, those differences are largely political. There are some 
very small theological differences, but in all the essentials that make up Islam, uh, the Sunnis and the Shiites really agree on everything. Um, and I thought that Islam was the cat's whiskers. I thought everyone should believe it. I thought mm -hmm. that people should believe true things and, and, and not false things. And I wanted them to believe true things. And I had all these, uh, in the suburb I grew up in, uh, Detroit, uh, we were like sort of exotic. You know, we were like the Muslim family around. Uh, there was only a few of us in the area. Now there's tons. But uh, back then in the suburb I was living in, there weren't very many. We were sort of the cute and exotic Muslim family. Oh, look at the Muslims. Look at the Muslims. And it was kind of interesting. I got to be uh, sort of passed around in the, sh in the show and tell hours. So Sounds like something they could have made a sitcom out of. <laughs> <laughs> I think they actually tried to do that on one of, the, uh, one of those reality shows, but that didn't work out so great. Uh, but yeah, we could have been a sitcom. We're that, we're that kind of a family. We would have been like everybody else, Raymond. <laughs> very much, very much like that. Um, but I, all these Christians were around me, at least nominal Christians were around me, and I wanted them to believe Islam. I cared about their eternal destinies. I wanted them to be in God's paradise. And I thought that their beliefs in the incarnation of God in Christ and the Trinity and all these things were blasphemies that would send them to hell. And I didn't want them to go to hell, so I wanted them to be in heaven. So I began to share Islam with them. And, and what I would do was essentially challenge their belief systems. I would, I would challenge the, the, Christianity. I would use uh, scholars like Bart Ehrman and others and say, don't you guys know that the Bible's been changed? It was once God's word, but became corrupted over time and all these things. And mm -hmm. can't you see the corruptions here? Uh, but the Quran has always been the same, I would, I would argue. Of course, that's, that's false. But I would always argue that the Quran has always been the same. And I, I didn't know it was false back then, but I thought it was true. And I would sort of have this like dazzling presentation about Islam. And most Christians had no idea how to respond, just mm. absolutely no idea how to respond. Um, and I would ask them a question. I'd say, why are you a Christian? And more often than not, the answer was, I was raised that way. And I'd follow up with another question. Is that a good enough reason to trust your soul to this worldview because your parents believe it? And it's not a good enough reason. And, but no one ever asked me back, why are you a Muslim? Mm -hmm. they, never, they never said, is it because of tradition or what? So um, I, I, I had a field day with, with most of these Christians, but there were the occasional annoying Christians who knew what they were talking about and knew why they believed what they believed and made it an interesting day for me. So uh, we would uh, chat and talk and go back and forth, and in the nutshell version of it is that I began to see something as I began to look at the Bible. And I was reading it to find all the flaws, to find all the holes and contradictions so I could nail these Christians between the eyes with the contradiction and keep them down. Mm -hmm. and then offer them Islam in, in return. But I saw something in, in, in a chapter of the Bible, chapters and verses of the Bible, Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following. Um, John the Baptist is talking to those who are coming to him to be baptized, and he says, Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Of course, meaning God's judgment. And then he says, Do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, meaning as if that would save them, just their lineage would save them. For I tell you, God can raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. Now that shook me, because what he was saying was what I was saying. Tradition isn't as important as truth. And if you bank on tradition, you could be on the wrong side of that. Well, I was asking Christians, why are you, why are you Christians? And they would say tradition, and I'd say it's not a good enough reason. But no one ever asked me, why are you a Muslim? And if they asked me, I would have had to have said, if I was being honest, tradition. I found lots of reasons to justify my faith, but I never actually sat, sat down and taken the time to say, is this the reason I'm, I'm a Muslim, or was it tradition? And I realized something. And, and John the Baptist's words, through the Holy Spirit, 
I think, through the power of the Bible itself, um, convicted me of the fact that I was believing it because of tradition, not because of truth. Mm-hmm. And so that got me searching, really searching. And I, I found some things that uh, started to really shake my belief that, that the Bible was corrupted. I began to see that maybe it wasn't corrupted after all, that what we have today is essentially what was written in the first century, that it can be trusted. Um, and that um, when Jesus claims to be the Son of God who died for the sins of the world, he, and he rose from the dead as a matter of history to prove that he was right. I began to intellectually assent to all of that. I knew it in my mind. I, I accepted it intellectually. I just wouldn't embrace it uh, as part of my life. And I remember sitting at a desk in my parents' den. I was living in my parents' house at the time. I was sitting at a desk with all the evidence I could muster. I had all my evidence for Islam on the left side of the desk, all the evidence for Christianity on the right side of the desk. And then playing on the computer behind me was a debate between a Christian and a Muslim on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead historically. So I was surrounded by the evidence. And I found the evidence for the gospel so compelling, and I began to ask God, why? Why can't I accept it? You know, why can't I make it part of my life? I know I believe it. It's true. I assent. But why can't I make it my part of my life? And then the answer walked by the door. My father walked by. And I knew that the reason I couldn't accept it is because of the cost and what it would cost me. Um, and that was just too much for me to bear at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Nick, an important thing I think that apologists sometimes forget is that the answers are not hard to find. They're just really hard to accept. Yeah. And as apologists, we need, I think we need to be cognizant of that fact that our friends who are being stubborn or who aren't getting it or who are really intelligent people and who aren't getting the arguments and you're wondering, why is it you're not getting this? You're too smart to not get this. It's not that they can't get it. It's that they don't want to get it because they know there's consequences. And that was me. But I'll tell you, um, when I began to see the unfolding of how wonderfully great God is demonstrated to be in the gospel and how whatever I would lose paled in comparison to who I would gain, which is Jesus, that's when I finally saw how he was worth the cost, and that's when God made me into a son from a stone. Yeah, I'm thinking when you talk about your relationship with your parents, about my other friend, Nabil Qureshi, who went through the exact same thing in some ways, having many dreams and such, and he's just now starting to rebuild his relationship with his parents, I think. Yeah. And how, how's your relationship with your family because of this today? You know, it, um, I, I came to faith a few years before Nabil. Um, it, it didn't go well, obviously, it was, they didn't throw me a party or anything. No. But, uh, you know, Nick, um, uh, Nabil and I are great friends, and we talk all the time, and we share sort of the same common um, experiences, and so we talk together. And we're both, we've both been proud, uh, not proud, I should say, happy to see that God is so good because he weaves these tight relationships back together again. They get, so, they get torn apart, but they're back together again. So we are closer. Uh, I'd say closer than we've ever been since the last time, since, since, um, you know, since we've had a blow up over the whole um, different faiths issue. But um, we are close again. I see them all the time. And um, while there's still tension, um, uh, we've, been, we've been knitting it back together again. It's been 14 years, but it, uh, but it has become uh, it's blossoming back into a really great family relationship. So thanks for asking. Now, your book is called The Grand Central Question, which leads me to the conclusion you really like trains, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I was, uh, I think I was sitting uh, actually at Grand Central Station um, and uh, thinking about the ways in which so many complicated lines, you can go anywhere from that place basically on these 
a spaghetti code of lines and all this strange, you know, these train lines going everywhere, but you go to one place to get out. Um, and all, uh, there's clarity brought in this one place. And I remember thinking, I think that so many worldviews are like that. So many views. I mean, they're, they answer a plethora of questions. I mean, uh, you, you and I both know well, Nick, because of our work as apologists, that there's a million questions to be answered. Yep. And every time you answer a question, there's a million follow-up questions that come with it. Yeah. But, um, mm -hmm. but there's got to be something that is centrally important to the person who holds that worldview. So mm -hmm. if, an if, if an atheist, there is a central important issue. Um, if, if he's a Muslim, and I know this from my experience as a Muslim in the community around me, sure, they can throw up a million questions and challenge the gospel in so many ways, or try to say that Islam answers a million questions. But what is the central question it's answering? Because you can get off on a lot of rabbit trails. Mm -hmm. What's the central question? And so I saw that metaphor really played out well with, with, with Grand Central Station itself. And I remember thinking, you know what, uh, I've done so many Q&As at different um, events, and the questions are always, you know, they're, they're sort of the same. I, I've very rarely been asked a, a new question that hasn't been asked before. But the questions are always different in this sense. Someone new is asking them. So how, it, how the answer matters is different to that person. But the mm -hmm. questions are the same. So um, how, how, can, how, can the, um, how can the Christian reach out and say, what is the central question? What is the big question? If you had an answer to this big question, would that help you to see the gospel as more credible? Yeah, I was thinking when I was writing a blog post announcing your coming on the show, I was thinking maybe I should make some sort of Sheldon Cooper joke about trains here. <laughs> I just got into the Big Bang Theory. I, I, I've been a, I'm a latecomer to that, but uh, that would have been funny because I, yeah. I, I, would, have got, I would have gotten it now. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I love that show, and she's convinced she's married to Sheldon. <laughs> now, That's that's funny. Uh, we, have, we also find out in this book that you study law, which means you come to experience this of a lawyer. We'll try to not hold that against you. Well, please don't. Please don't. There are, there are, there are, there are more of us that are, that, that, are, that are scrupulous people than there are that are unscrupulous, but uh, it, it, it has been a rough road. There's uh, a little secret. Most lawyers don't like other lawyers. Mm. <laughs> Well, let's start diving into the meat of the book with a grand central question here. And now the first worldview question you're dealing with really is the existence of God. Are we going to go with materialism or with some form of theism? So uh, why start here? Well, I think the reason why I wanted to start there as the first worldview uh, to tackle is because if there's a distinction between the other major worldviews, the other major worldviews, of course, are pantheistic thinking and then monotheism, and the monotheism I, I address is Islam, um, because it's the largest monotheism religion outside of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are, I think there are four fundamental questions that every worldview has to answer. Uh, origin meaning, uh, you know, origin and the ideas of morality and meaning and purpose in life, uh, the human condition, why things are the way they are, and is there a way out of here? Uh, and atheism, naturalism, sort of uh, tackles the first two. Um, how do we get here? And is there a way out of here? Is there a way out of this mess, so to speak? And it answers both in an interesting way because it says there is no real reason why we're here. We're just mm -hmm. here. Um, and it gives scientific reasons or naturalistic explanations, but there's no mm -hmm. reason. There's no pre-vision pre, pre of us being here. Right. And therefore, there would be no destiny, ultimately. And that first question, mm -hmm. how we got here, 
uh, in terms of origin, but is there something responsible for our, for, for, for our existence that had us in mind? Mm -hmm. That colors every other question. Right. Um, so that's why I start with that one. Mm. Now, I'm thinking about how uh, Stephen Jay Gould said that we're here because of a particular anatomy developed from a particular fish, so count your lucky stars in a literal <laughs> sense. Yes. Well, he, 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 was, uh, he was a lot of things, and one thing he was was funny. Mm -hmm. he, did, he was funniest every so often. But, you know, his quote is such an interesting quote, and I, as, as you know, I, I, I go through it in the book because he, he starts out, he, he's one of the very few, I think, um, uh, atheist scientists of his day who, were, who, who snuck in the subtleties every so often of, I think, the quiet despair with which they lived. Mm -hmm. uh, because he says in that same quote, we're here because of basically uh, all these random processes and evolution and various things. Mm -hmm. um, at the end, he says that uh, he basically says there is no higher answer. We may yearn for a higher, a higher answer, he says, but there, but none exists. And then he says something really interesting. He yes. says this explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Mm -hmm. What a, what a strange thing to say. Yeah. He says there is that this explanation is superficially troubling, if not terrifying. Well, it's terrifying. I mean, it, 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 in, in some senses, the idea that, mm -hmm. you know, a comet could smash into us tomorrow and the universe would not blink. It would not shed a tear over mm -hmm. us. Um, yeah, I can see why that would be terrifying. I can't see how it's liberating and exhilarating. I, I can't see that. And that sort of is the part where I think sometimes... Our atheist friends want to sort of stand up and show this bravado. They, they look into the yawning chasm of meaninglessness and say, I can take it. Well, you can't. Eventually, you can't. Um, so that's kind of why I think that, that's a, such an interesting quote. Yeah, I'm thinking if an atheist is listening right now to this, they could say, well, you know, that might be terrible if that's the way reality is, but that's the way reality is, and just because you want your origins to be something divine, you want your origins to be something great, but that doesn't mean it is. Well, that's right, and it, it means to be right about that. It, it, our desire does not determine truth, mm -hmm. um, nor, nor, nor would our desire for meaninglessness determine truth. Um, I, but it's, it's interesting because I sometimes think that um, when you look at uh, certain atheist writings, like, like, like Lawrence Krauss, for example, when he talks about things, he, he, he actually betrays what I think is sometimes his actual motivation. When he says things like, it's science's job, essentially, to expose these, that, that, that there's an illusion for meaning, that we're looking for meaning in an objective sense, but it's science's job to stamp that out. That's interesting, because why couldn't it be science's job to do the opposite? Mm -hmm. Show if it actually, if there is an objective purpose, an objective, objective meaning. Right. Um, uh, but I, you know, ultimately, a, a worldview um, that uh, doesn't have an objective sense of meaning is ultimately unlivable. Um, uh, I think that if we had a sub, just a, just rampant subjective moral values, uh, then we can't affirm something that I think every secular humanist wants to affirm, which is mm -hmm. that human beings essentially have dignity and value. Mm -hmm. um, and those who don't are oftentimes in or, or who those who don't hold to a theistic framework are sometimes caught being very inconsistent in that view mm -hmm. because they'll rail against God. Uh, a la Richard Dawkins saying he's a you know pestilential, malevolent, uh, tribal, homicidal bully, which means he you know he picks on human beings because human beings are valuable and God shouldn't do that. And then he'll turn around and say that human beings are just machines for propagating mm -hmm. DNA. Yeah. But which one is it? Are we valuable or are we machines? Which mm -hmm. one is it? 
before we get to the question of morality and our value of it, let's finish a thought on origins, for instance. Now, uh, the <clears throat> naturalistic at world beauties, it does have an origin story, per se. In terms of the, nat the naturalistic uh, explanation, it's funny because it does have an origin story in the sense that, uh, and, and it's sort of evolving, uh, pardon, the, pardon the pun, uh, over time, uh, in the sense that, um, you know, as you know, there was, for, hundred, for, for for the last hundred years, there was the idea that the universe, there was a st sort of steady state model. The universe always existed. And so ideas about explanations weren't necessarily forthcoming, just it always existed. And maybe it changed over time, but it was it always existed. And then, of course, the standard uh, models had come out and said, no, that, it, everything began at a, at a particular point in the, in the finite past. And they're fine-tuning that, and they're... Um, Changing it and modifying it uh, slightly here and there, and now you have sort of the curved end that um, uh, Stephen Hawking and, and, and those like him uh, would, would talk about. But then you have Lawrence Krauss, who says everything came out of nothing. We understand that story, but there was this quantum fluctuation of energy, and everything popped into existence, much like subatomic particles sort of do. Um, it's an interesting thing, though, because that's that's an ex that, that that's a statement about how it got here, whether it's verifiable or not is another issue, mm -hmm. but. Um, but it's not a narrative. So, you know, the Bible has a narrative structure about how we got here. Now, that doesn't make it true. Right. Um, it just means that's the narrative structure about how we got here. But when I think, when you look at, and this is why I think one of the reasons why the Bible is such a beautiful book, um, because when you look at the empirical evidence, uh, when it comes to fine-tuning of the universe, when it comes to the origin of DNA and all these things, you see that it lines up with what the Bible seems to be saying about the fact that the universe is here on purpose, for a purpose, by a purpose group give, a giving creator. Uh, and not the universe itself alone, but also us in particular. So the story doesn't make it true. The story happens to line up with what the truth actually, at least the science, seems to suggest is the reality. Hmm. So I think it's actually incumbent upon the atheist more, more than, than it is the Christian to justify his beliefs in light of the science of the origins. Yeah, I've made it my stance in my own ministry to say I'm not a scientist, so I don't comment on the science as science. And so what I've found interesting is to go to the atheist and say, okay, um, just since this isn't my own, I'm just going to grant you this for the sake of argument. If you want an eternal universe, I'll grant you that. If you want a multiverse, I'll grant you that. If you want macro evolution, okay, I'll grant you that. Now, can you give me your argument against theism at this point? <laughs> right. Absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, so, so what? Uh, how do any of these things actually disprove God's existence? Now, I think an atheist might say, well, evolution shows, you know, as through Occam's razor, if you just hack off the unnecessary explanations, then God becomes unnecessary and therefore is not likely to exist because naturalism explains the existence of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in one sense, Nick, you're hitting on something very important, too, is that if the universe was eternal, so what? Why can't God also exist? Does he yeah. have to be? Uh, does it have to be finite in the past for God to exist? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that really goes on to a uh, to of course the um, the cosmological question. Uh, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, uh, Leibniz. Uh, Leibniz, of course. Yes, mm -hmm. Leibniz. With the um, uh, why is there something rather than nothing at all? Yeah. Kind of a thing. Because even if the universe is eternal, so why is it here? Yeah. Why is anything here? Yeah. The, um, the the analogy I use is that if you picture a man who, let's suppose the argument, has been eternally existing, mm 
and he's been for all eternity standing in front of an eternally existing mirror where he eternally sees his reflection. So here's a question. Does his eternal reflection sti still depend on the eternal man for its existence? Mm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, that, that, that's good. I've never heard that one before. Mm -hmm. That's very good. And so what I have to ask is, okay, does the universe contain within itself the principle of its own existence or not? If it doesn't, and I contend it doesn't, then it needs something else too, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm with you on that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, th th there really becomes a point at which, and I think Christians sometimes fall, fall, fall prey to this, mm -hmm. we, we, we want to explain the truth to people, or we want to explain God's existence, or show them a positive case. I think usually, and I don't say always, but I think usually because we care about wanting them to embrace it. We want them to see it, and we care about that. But we, we, we fail to see sometimes that sometimes just offering a challenge back to someone can say, have you thought this through? Have you thought should the negative worldview back or the, uh, the opposite worldview? Mm -hmm. Have you thought it through? Because sometimes that is what really shakes a person up. That happened to me, in fact, Nick, in terms yeah. of Islam and Christianity. I had had all these challenges back and forth about the Bible, for example, mm -hmm. and then I had to stop and think about something and say, does that make sense in light of my own worldview? Yeah. You know, and, and that's what really got me to start thinking about Christianity. So it isn't always the positive case that wins the day, or that starts a person thinking. I think this is critically important, of course, but it sometimes can be that just getting them to rethink their own view will, will do that. So uh, wonderful analogies like you're talking about with the mirror are, are great tools. Yeah, that also gets us into a point about morality, then, because I find a lot of atheists do want to hold on to an objective morality. They, they don't have an explanation for it, and yet, meanwhile, also I'm in dialogue with an atheist right now, who's saying that, yeah, I'm being consistent in saying there is no objective morality and there's no objective beauty as well. And it doesn't matter if we want to be, which I agree, but I'm saying, yeah, except I find the idea that, say, belching the alphabet is as beautiful as music of Bach or Mozart, which, in fact, if beauty's relative, that statement itself doesn't even make sense. They both just exist. That's it. Mm -hmm. Or that uh, killing your neighbor, loving your neighbor, there's no difference. It's just a, a preference. I've I find those to be absurd claims to believe in. Oh, absolutely. They're 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 absurd, uh, sort of on their face, and they're existentially absurd. Mm -hmm. I, I it would be interesting if in your dialogue with this with a this atheist, and I've had a similar thing happen, Nick. As you know, mm -hmm. oftentimes the strength of the argument for God's existence, because of the the premises logically. Uh, lead to the conclusion, it's just a valid argument that, you know, if these things exist, then God exists, is that the atheist is sort of forced to retreat to say, then they, then, ascent, then um, objective moral values don't exist. They have to do that, mm. which is a very painful mm. price to pay to yeah. prove that God, to, 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 to say that God doesn't exist. And I wonder if this, if, if this person who you're in dialogue with, and, uh, and I've actually asked this question, is, so when we're talking about these things, can I lie to you? Is that okay if I lie to you? Hmm. Like if I just start spouting off lies about God's existence and making up scientific facts, is that okay? Mm -hmm. um, or is it objectively a problem? In our search for truth, mm. is it objectively wrong for mm -hmm. me to start lying about it? Yeah. You know, how do we ever get there? Mm. Um, it just seems to me that, there, that there's always a moral uh, underpinning here. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone listens, most folks, I shouldn't say everyone, 
but most folks listening to, 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 your, to your show and uh, in, in terms of the argument will understand the import that our moral intuitions are offended um, by the idea that there are no absolute moral values. Even though when we say those things, we don't really mean it. Um, yeah. I was in dialogue with a, with a really bright young man recently. Um, he's an African-American gentleman, and um, he was raised in a Christian home, but he, he, he says he's an agnostic, but really he's an atheist. And he says, you know, the, my biggest thing is uh, slavery in the Bible. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So you believe in objective moral values then? He said, yeah. I said, so slavery is wrong? He said, yeah. I said, well, then can you explain that to me, how it exists without God? Um, and he had a hard time coming and calling about this, and then he eventually had to say, well, maybe they don't exist. He said, well, then what is your objection? Why do you object to God's existence if slavery isn't always wrong? Then what are you mad at the Bible for? It didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And so he, he sort of saw the import there. I think at, at, at some point when they realize that they, they do care about these things, and I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic <laughs> that our atheist friends do care about objective moral values. And even those who say they don't, I think are trying to win an argument. Because mm-hmm. they're, really, they're not willing to live that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I said I certainly think that your friend that you're talking to wouldn't be willing to live in a world where uh, morality is purely subjective. I don't think anyone could. In fact, I, I try to go a step further and say, before we even talk about morality, let's talk about goodness itself. That morality is a subsection of goodness. It's not, is there anything that's really good at all? And if there isn't, there's no such thing as morality. And if there's nothing that's good, where essentially there's not even any point worth living because... You can't say life is good. You can't say any goal that you want to reach is good. It's just a subjective preference. And there's not even one reason to prefer it. Because if you say you prefer something, you're saying that this is better than that. But that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, well, and, and you're right. The, the, the categories break down. You're mm-hmm. exactly right. The categories begin to break down. And the discussion becomes meaningless mm-hmm. uh, on these things at all. It just becomes, uh, I, I happen to, my neurons fire in a certain way that makes vanilla more attractive than chocolate. Well, okay. <laughs> so, you know, people write an awful lot of books on, on how to justify morality if there's no such thing. Uh, it seems to be to be, and it, this goes from C.S. Lewis's argument from desire, of course, which can be challenged, obviously, but we spend an awful lot, we spill an awful lot of ink talking about something that we think doesn't exist. I think that's a little strange, but uh, be that as it may, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that first section of the book, too, because I think the grand central question for, for secular humanism specifically as a branch of atheism is this idea that human beings have, have, have inherent value. That's part of what the name means, for heaven's sake. Humanism is, it, it's got a long and storied past, um, and, and its origins really start off, I think, with, with, with sort of a Christian worldview, talking about the inherent dignity and value of all human beings, qua human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and secular humanism, I think, adopts that, um, uh, living in sort of the heritage of the, the Christian tradition, and says they're, they're inherently valuable. That's why we have folks like um, Dawkins and Harris and others who sort of have who sort of bristle at these ideas about inequality. And, and, and thank thank goodness they do. But at the same time, they have no no consistent basis upon which to do it. So I, I you know I, I wrote this part of part of with a with, with a, a Blaise Pascal quote in mind. He said, "Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true." The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Mm-hmm. Next, next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. 
Yeah. Now, you and I have been talking about this for a while now, uh, Nick, is that just because you want it to be true doesn't mean that it is true. But just because you don't want it to be true doesn't mean it's false either. Mm-hmm. And there's something that we can, we can grasp onto with our friends who, who want to believe in objective moral values, who want to believe in objective human dignity, and say, I'm glad you want to believe in that. I think it's a true search to find how, how you can ground it. But you can't ground it in your worldview. You can ground it in the Christian worldview. Yeah, I can't but think that someone like Nietzsche today, if he was alive and seeing the new atheist, he'd probably say something like, you all, go ahead and be quiet, please. You're talking, making all this talk about objective goodness and values and things of that sort. You're atheist. Give it up. It doesn't exist. Deal with reality. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, it's funny because you have a, sort of a resurgence of the, the neo-Nietzschean idea when you have Julian Baggini, for example, not too long ago, who wrote um, uh, a piece, uh, sort of his atheist manifesto, mm-hmm. um, and he, he, he was railing against this whole idea. You remember, you, you, everyone remembers those billboards that were up in, on the double-deckers in England. Uh, there's probably no God, and I'll stop worrying and enjoy your life. Yeah. Um, Baggini wrote a piece called Life, Without, uh, uh, life Can Be Bleak. Atheism is about facing up to it. And he said... You know, atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. Can you really tell the parents who lost their child to a suicide after years of depression mm-hmm. they should stop worrying and enjoy life? Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, that's, a, that's a very Nietzsche thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> He's just saying, look, you, 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 you are fooling yourself if you think that atheism is about the idea that there can be uh, beauty and magic and mystery and meaning and mm-hmm. joy for everyone because for mm-hmm. some it's not going to happen it's just not going to yeah. and there's no second chances and uh, it's hard to see how he's wrong on atheism there's no way to say he's wrong he's absolutely right yeah. I think and Nietzsche would be in good company I think with Baggini but not with most of the new atheists as you're pointing out yeah uh, I mean, when it comes to beauty and goodness and such it's not that I believe these things because I want me to it's these these claims are so self-evident that I, I think what Peter Kratos says, it doesn't take a PhD to see these, it takes a PhD to miss them. And, <laughs> uh, right. he, yeah. he said that without society, we're either one of three things will happen. Either first, we are self-destruct and destroy ourselves with these new philosophies we're embracing. Or second, we'll prove that every cultural world that has believed in objective goodness and objective beauty has been wrong. Or third, we repent of our wicked ways and return to, to our old traditions and embrace objective goodness and objective beauty. And personally, if things don't change soon in our society, I'm thinking we're going to do the one with self-destruct, most likely. Well, you know, Nick, you're, you're, you're reading the tea leaves, but they're not so tea leafy. They're actually quite, the signs are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pointed this out in the book, too. When you, when you live with this idea... That there is no objective moral values, or or, or, or that humanity is the one who decides them. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously, to be objective, they have to be, they have to be beyond human opinion. But if there's nothing beyond human opinion, then they are subjective to human opinion. Yeah. And um, you see this outworking with people like Peter Singer, but also the you know medical ethicists like Alberto Giubilini and uh, Francesca Minerva, uh, two Italian medical ethicists out of Australia who wrote in the Journal of Medicine that it is justifiable following along the lines of Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. It's justifiable, philosophically, medically, ethically justifiable, for parents to kill their, not preborn, but newborn yep. children. 
for any reason. Mm-hmm. And they base it on the idea that a human being is not a person until that person becomes self-aware and can value themselves. And babies can't do that. So the only real person in the equation is the adult mother or the adult father. And since they're the one who puts the value on the baby, they can say the baby has no value and therefore kill the baby if it gets in the way or whatever it might be. Whether there's some kind of a birth defect or simply this, mm-hmm. you are a burden financially. You know, yeah. Or I have a career or I'm an athlete or whatever it might be. That's, that is the kind of thing that results from subjective moral reasoning mm-hmm. alone. Um, that's the kind of thing that will result. And I think that's why um, when Peter Kreeft says that, I think he's absolutely right. And we're starting to see it in our day. Yeah, I've made the statement before that when we look at the ancient Canaanites that Israel helped obliterate in its time that they would be practicing child sacrifice and say, yeah, that was wicked and evil, but at least when they sacrificed their children, they were trying to ensure the goodness of a harvest or something like that. When we sacrifice our children, we do it for the sake of convenience. Mm, yes. <laughs> well put. You know, people, t- uh, yeah, back then they would sacrifice their children to Molech, and, mm-hmm. uh, just, uh, and nowadays we sacrifice our children to career. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, there's a whole lot more that's said in the book on atheism and theism. So we've just given a brief thumbnail, but as it is, we've only got so much time, so we're going to move on now. We're going to be assuming some form of theism has been established. So now our question is going to be, why traditional monotheism instead of pantheism? So first off, I was trying to explain for the audience that might not know, where exactly are we talking about when we talk about pantheism? Mm, uh, yeah, and this is an interesting, it's a great question, Nick, because it's interesting people don't realize that they're, they're more familiar with pantheism than they, than, than they know. Mm-hmm. Um, pantheism has many expressions. It's an Eastern thought, but it actually came from the Greeks. The Greeks really sort of, as they migrated from uh, Greece into Persia and eventually into India, pantheistic thinking really started to take hold in India. Today we find its expressions in Hinduism, mm-hmm. Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Confucianism. But in the West, we find its expressions in the New Age and the New Spirituality, uh-huh. and we find it in Scientology and these kinds of things. Uh-huh. Uh, essentially, the, the, the name gives it away in terms of its Greek uh, sort of roots. You have pan, meaning all, and theos, meaning God. Mm-hmm. So pantheism is essentially the view that all is God, and all is one. So everything is God. I'm God, you're God, the microphones we're using are God. All these things are God. Now, not just God's plural. We actually are all the one and only God there is. We're mm-hmm. all part of the divine. Yeah. Um, and we're just, we, we're under the illusion of separateness. We're under the illusion of lack of divinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to quote Deepak Chopra, we are gods in embryo. And we just need to wake up mm-hmm. to our divine status. So pantheism in all of its forms uh, believes this to some degree. Now there are polytheistic pantheists, like there are Hindus, for instance, who worship 300 million different gods. But even those Hindus believe that all those gods are manifestations of the one creative force called the Brahman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the New Agers, they think it's the universe, or Gaia, or, or you name it. Yeah. Uh, there's always one source for everything. Mm-hmm. And we're all trying to realize our unity with that one source. And until we do, we'll be living in the state of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. So that's pantheism in a nutshell. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex system of belief, and it's got its own manifestations in various world, world religions, but that's pantheism in a nutshell, that everything is God, and God is, and God is one. Okay, so 
So we're missing. Well, okay, yeah, that's a new age movement and such in many ways, but uh, what's the problem with that? I mean, isn't that the way reality is? Mm. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, uh, it, pre it, it, it preys on a negative view. Uh, there's a couple of things wrong with pantheism. There's some very serious logical problems with its outworkings. Uh, the first thing is this. Um, if we are all essentially God in our natures, um, and we are all part of the essential, uh, the, the, the divine intellect or the divine uh, all creative force, what could have tricked us into thinking we're not? If everything is, everything is God, what could possibly have tricked you or me into thinking you're not? How is it possible? If, you're a, if you are an eternally existent being who is in communion with everything at once, I'm not sure what could have possibly tricked me into thinking I wasn't. And by the way, if we're all part of the same, who got tricked? Mm -hmm. we're, we're all part of the same thing. We're all part of the one consciousness mm -hmm. or the one uh, even impersonal universe. So it's, a, it's, it's hard to see how we were tricked. And it's even more impossible to see who was tricked in the first place mm -hmm. into thinking this. So the idea that we, uh, our perception of our separateness to me, is actually empirical evidence against pantheism because it's hard to see who was tricked in the first place. So I think that our perceptions are probably more accurate than uh, what pantheism tells us, that we're all part of the one divine. I think this is just a matter of just a fundamental issue with pantheism. Um, and then, then, of course, with the ideas of um, incarnation and reincarnation. And I think in the West, we've sort of adopted a romantic view of this idea of death and rebirth. In the East, that's not a good thing. The, the cycle of samsara, of death and rebirth, is bad. You don't want to keep coming back. You want to eventually stop dying and rebirth, being reborn mm -hmm. because you want to become part of the impersonal absolute, the Brahman. That's for the Hindu. For the Buddhist, you want to become nothing. That's your goal, is to become nothing. Mm -hmm. um, we in the West want to you know, evolve into these, I want to come back as a you know, condor or something. That's very pie in the sky, but it's not not orthodox pan, uh, pantheism, so to speak. Um, so, but, and, and we, we, we keep dying and, and, and being reborn mm -hmm. because we're trying to work off our karma. Well, the question comes this. What were, were, were we working off in our first life? What bad karma did we have to work off in our first life? Mm -hmm. we, again, what accounts for the origin of my identity as Abdu Murray versus the Brahmin? There's just really no cogent explanation there. It lacks sort of a, a correspondence um, to, to reality, but it also lacks a coherence. Well, with the uh, first thing you think about the tricking aspect, I was saying another question we could ask in background was not just how did we get tricked in the what what is being tricked exactly, but just as we ask who's doing the tricking in all of this. <laughs> another good question. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If, if, all, if we're all the same and we're all one, then how did one? Uh, how, how did we? Who? Yeah. Who did it? Who mm -hmm. else is left? There's no one left to trick mm -hmm. anybody. Yeah, and with the uh, reincarnation, I was discussing this with some friends at a church event recently. I said, actually, reincarnation—it's not what the pantheists really teach. They teach transmigration. It's just when they were trying to get a, over here and get Americans to get interested in Eastern religion, they found out pretty quickly Americans weren't too keen on the idea of coming back as a rat. So they said, <laughs> right. well, you can only come back as another human being. Oh, okay, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it's so funny because given that, 
when, when, when pantheism really dawned in, in the West, um, and we took it, we, we got so romantic about the whole idea, and C.S. Lewis, and I say this in the book too, C.S. Lewis does it in, in the screw tape letters, he, he talks about when, when, when the master demon is teaching his, his apprentice, in order to trick them out of belief in God, he has to prey on their horror of the same old thing. And I think when pantheism dawned, when the New Age and other ideas dawned here in America and in the West, um, our, our horror of the same old thing is what helped pantheism spread because it sounds exotic and deep and spiritual mm -hmm. and interesting as opposed to what we consider to be the same old thing of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure, God and the guy with the white beard and all this stuff and be a good person and you go to heaven. Uh, now, uh, apart from the fact that that's not even what Christianity teaches, um, they thought it was. And so they kind of said, oh, this sounds really spiritual and interesting. And oh, I can come back as a, as a warrior or a king or maybe I was one in my past life or whatever. It's all romantic and sexy, but um, it, it ultimately leads to, I think, really uh, the ultimate illusion, which is to think that these things are real um, modes of existence when in reality I think what the Bible teaches about our existence is what's really important. And it leads to things that I think become horrible, frankly. I mean, not in the sense that, that the pantheistic teachers are trying to teach you horrible things. It's that they lead to horrid, I think, horrid um, implications, eventually. Um, like the idea of what pain really is and how we deal with it, which is why I talk about that as the grand central question for all of pantheistic thinking. Mm -hmm. Go into that some. Sure. Um, well, uh, when you look at all iterations of pantheism, I, I, mean, I don't care if it's the extremely Western versions, the sci-fi versions of Scientology, or the New Agey versions of Shirley MacLaine and Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle and Marianne Williamson, all of them basically say that pain is an illusion because we're under the illusion that we're not divine. Our existence is an illusion called Maya. And essentially, our pain is an illusion that what we're experiencing in terms of suffering is not real, that we have to just wake up from our state and that we'll eventually be enlightened enough to realize our pain and we'll escape this mode of existence, we'll escape our illusion of pain. That's why when you see Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra talk about this, um, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, Tolle, when you think about uh, what he says in the book, The Power of Now, made popular by Oprah Winfrey when she, mm. when she was on her book club, sold millions of copies. People are buying this stuff up. He's a, he's, he's a Hindu, essentially, but he doesn't use Hindu words. He uses Western words to cover that fact up. Um, he says this, enlightenment consciously chosen means to relinquish your attachment to past and future and make the now the main focus of your life. It means choosing to dwell in the state of presence rather than in time. It means saying yes to what is. You then don't need pain anymore. An interesting statement. Um, how much more time do you think you will need before you are able to say, I will create no more pain, no more suffering? How much more pain do you need before you can make that choice, he says. And my response to that is, are, are you serious? Can you be, really be serious? You're telling us that our pain that is an illusion that we create because we're holding on to the past and we're anxious for the future. And if we just live in the now and realize our inner divinity, and enlighten ourselves, we can be free of pain. I wonder if Mr. Tolle would be would be willing to stand in front of a parent who lost a child at Newtown at Sandy Hook Elementary School and say, just let go of the past with your child and don't worry about the future. 
how much more pain do you think you'll need before you can let go? What, really? Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's what I'm talking about, about the kind of thing that that kind of worldview, though well-meaning sometimes, can ultimately result in, I think, a monstrous idea that the reason that parent feels that pain is because they had a connection with a child who was a valuable person in their own right. And Mr. Tolle is basically telling us, let go, let go. None of that person's valuable. Of course, I don't let go. And that's the fundamental distinction between, I think, pantheism and the gospel. The gospel is not the kind of thing that is not the kind of message that tells you, hang in there, you'll be fine. Um, or get rid of your illusions of pain and suffering. Um, it says these things are real. They're mm -hmm. so real, in fact, that God's own son experiences it in a way that we would never fathom in terms of how much pain that was was what was it was exhibited upon the Son of God, not just the physical, but also sort of the spiritual um, uh, ramifications of what he experienced and finished on that cross for us. Um, this is why he cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" That that sense of of uh, God's wrath is just unbelievable. I can't, we can't imagine what it would be like. I think, but uh, it's not it's not fake. It's not an illusion. It's real, and he deals with it. He doesn't say escape from it. He doesn't say run away from it. He doesn't say meditate your way out of it. He says, I've dealt with it. Um, and in that, it's interesting because he, he does something, Jesus does something that I think is so refreshingly honest. And that's why I think the gospel is unique in so many ways. It doesn't tell you what you want to hear. It tells you what you need to hear. Mm -hmm. What we want to hear is you can be the solution to the problem. You can enlighten your way out of it. You are a God. You are divine. You are powerful. You are wonderful. All these great things. Um, and you can sort of manufacture a way out of this mess. Um, Jesus doesn't tell you that. Mm -hmm. He tells you that you're a wretched sinner. And God loves you anyway. And he wants to save you from yourself. It's interesting because there's no logical inconsistency there. Um, atheism, Islam, and pantheism, I think both, all three I should say, uh, live with a fundamental contradiction. All of them say, to some degree, that humanity can better itself. That though we're the problem, we can be the solution. Well, I think that's an inconsistent idea. If we're the problem in our very nature, how can we be the solution? Mm -hmm. We're the problem. <laughs> you know? Um, it's like you need, having a bad heart. It needs to be transplanted. You, 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 know, you can't exercise your heart into, a, into health kind of a thing. Um, when it's uh, diseased or part of it's dead. Um, it it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Christianity tells you what's real. It tells you that you're the problem, and therefore you can't be trusted to be your own solution. You need someone else beyond you to, solve, to, to, to save you from you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think the cross does that so beautifully because it actually, not only does it demonstrate it in terms of theological import, but it says rooted in history is the fact that God has actually done something for us. He dealt with pain. He dealt with suffering. He didn't say escape it. He said, it's going to happen in this life, but take heart. I have overcome all of this, and eventually um, uh, it will, there will be a time when it's over, because I've dealt with it. Yeah. I also think it's important that you mention Oprah Winfrey, since she seems to be the largest distributor today of the New Age worldview to people. That if she puts something on her book list that people are going to read it, and so much of it is just New Age material. Absolutely. I think people really need to, to, to sort of wake up to this idea um, that, um, sure, she does great things for charity. She's mm -hmm. got schools for girls in, in, in Africa, and 
she gives away tons of stuff and and thank thank goodness that she's she's helping people. I'm not happy about that. But what she's doing that people don't really realize is the way in which she's purveying her own worldview. You know, she was raised to believe. Uh, she's raised in a Christian uh, background, but then said, you know, I have a hard time believing that God would send people to hell, or that um, uh, he, this is that Jesus is the exclusive way. That can't be the case. And so she broadens her mind um, to include these pantheistic and new age ideas. Mm-hmm. Then she has folks like Eckhart Tolle, who I, I would venture to say most people didn't even know who the heck he was until he was on her show. Of course, Deepak Chopra had made a name for himself before Oprah Winfrey had made him even more popular, but he comes on her show and he sells millions of books. Mm-hmm. Marianne Williamson, um, with A Course in Miracles and other things, she, she's from my area. She's from Detroit, mm-hmm. the church of today. She was on Oprah Winfrey's show and took off wildly in terms of, their, of, of her influence and that kind of thing. But one of the things I think that people don't realize, Nick, and um, some do but some don't, is the pervasive nature of pantheism because, and, and the New Age philosophies. Almost all of the, 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 the big sci-fi uh, movies that have come out in the past that have made that have been blockbusters have at least partly or fully a pantheistic worldview in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about Avatar as an example. I mean, my goodness, you have these people who are in commune, uh, who are who commune with and are one, are part of um, the, the world they live on, which is a living being itself. And when they die, mm-hmm. they go to her. They become part of her, and that's the ultimate goal: is to become a part of um, uh, the, the, the the Awa is the name of the, the, the being in that movie. And it's no, I think it's no accident that the Navi are blue, like Krishna and all and and um, uh, Vishnu are always portrayed in Hindu Hindu. Um, uh, drawings and paintings as blue. I think it's no no coincidence there that that worldview is being, um, if not uh, if not a spouse, at least you know uh, touted or used to tell a story. Yeah. And that's tr- it's true with Star Wars, and it's yeah. true with uh, Matrix and other things as well. Yeah, I was going to mention Star Wars as well, and I mean a lot of these movies that I really do enjoy, the Matrix, for instance, it's one of my favorite films. But it's the same time, I mean, you got to be careful about the worldviews too. Oh, absolutely, mm. absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm a big Star Wars fan and a big Matrix fan. I, I love, I love both series, mm. um, uh, despite some of the uh, really unfortunate shortcomings of the the, uh, the the latest three of the Star Wars films. Mm. I still like them all, and I still watch yeah. them all because I'm a diehard. But uh, it's funny because I sit there and if I watch them with my son, for example, I'll say, "What did you notice about that? What did you think about what the Force is and, and how this works?" and if we talk about these worldviews, we can we can begin to really intelligently understand and see where they where they pop up. Yeah, I really say the advantage of the Matrix is the Matrix at least does get people asking those kinds of questions, which gives us a really good foothold in evangelism when we talk about the Matrix with people. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and of course, the makers of, 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 of those movies borrowed heavily from a lot of different worldviews, mm-hmm. uh, uh, including Christianity. I mean, when you look at the end of the way the the, the series ends with Neo. Uh, sort of giving his life uh, for um, humanity and um, the, the machines as well, and he sort of lets the sin come onto him in terms of uh, the uh, the agent, uh, you know, his sort of blackness coming onto him so he can defeat it. That's a very Christian, very Christian theme. But uh, obviously, the ideas of karma and death and rebirth and destiny and cycles and all that stuff mm-hmm. and all being one and what's real—that's all very pantheistic. Mm-hmm. And I'm also thinking in another way in a pop culture that uh, 
since I'm married now, I'll be married four years next month. That, uh, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, she, so far she hasn't cured me yet. <laughs> well, 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 we'll pray for you guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> for you, and, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure she's in the bedroom doing some reading or something right now, and she's probably hearing us and thinking, yet. <laughs> but anyway, when we've uh, been watching TV, sometimes we'll see these commercials or these dating websites, and after a while she stopped asking, did you try that? Because every single time, I was like, yeah, I tried that one too. But when, when I was trying these sites, one aspect I'd see I'd show up in each of these would be the claim of spiritual, but not religious. Mm, yes. It was a claim that to me never made any sense whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you're, I think you're, you're hitting on something very important. I mean, people are identifying this way. I, I'm sure you're aware of those studies that show that there's an increasing number of what they call nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who, uh, if they say, what's your religious affiliation, they'd say none but they'd also identify as spiritual. Um, and Sam Harris tried to sort of recapture this word spiritual um, uh, recently to talk about things that are, you know, sort of awe-inspiring and appeal to the, the imagination and our sense of wonder. Um, but uh, again, the, the, the word itself has got the word spirit in it, for heaven's sake. How can you uh, denude it of its uh, supernatural import? But yes, yeah, spiritual but not religious. You know, it's interesting, Nick, you say that because I think Everyone is essentially religious to a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, scientism is essentially, uh, when it comes down to it, a religious philosophy um, about the ultimate nature of reality and who gets to, to, to determine what's real. Science mm -hmm. is the only means, and scientists are our high priests. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, spiritual and not religious, I think, is it's, it's, it's an oxymoronic idea. Yeah, I, I really like the way you refer to science as our high priest, because the thing I've made long times is that it's, this has become the new fundamentalism of today. In the past, there was the Bible was the final authority, and the priests were the bearers of knowledge, and everyone bowed down to the priest. And today, we do the exact same thing. We have science, where science is the new fundamentalism, as it were. And I don't say that bash science. Science, properly understood, is a wonderful thing, but when it becomes the final arbiter of truth, we have a problem, and so many atheists I meet hold to science and give it the same authority as, say, fundamentalists that are entirely married to inerrancy, let's say, that there can be no error whatsoever. And I say that as one who holds to inerrancy and as one who holds to the value of science, that these are just creeds that are held to and Science has become the new priesthood. It's given the exact same authority that the Bible they condemn is given. Mm. Well, it's interesting because uh, I would go uh, possibly even a step further, Nick, is because the, uh, the idea of, you know, si no, no one, at least I don't think anybody, should be afraid of or denigrate science of as course. a discipline as opposed to scientism. Yeah. which is the idea that science is the only means by which we know anything about reality mm -hmm. and that those who practice science are therefore the ultimate authorities. And that's the fundamentalism you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me because um, I don't even think a fundamentalist, a Christian, for example, or someone, you know, a uh, hundred years ago would have said that the Bible is our authority um, and the sole source of all human knowledge. Yep. It doesn't. No one. No one's really said that. Is that we mm -hmm. have 
the ability to explore creation. The Bible tells us about creation, but it leaves some stuff out for mm -hmm. us to discover. Mm -hmm. You won't find the infinitesimal calculus in Zechariah. You're not going to find that. Mm -hmm. um, but you do discover it as part of God's general revelation, which is, of course, the creation. So, but, but it's interesting because the scientists will go further, to, and I mean scientism of practitioners, I would say, go further and say that science is the only way you can know anything about reality. Well, that statement you just said isn't scientific, so that statement isn't scientific, so throw it out. And that's sort of like the, the, the mistake that people like Hume have made and some of the mistakes that I think have, have, have continued to be propagated among some of those who say that science is the last arbiter on matters of truth. Uh, Sam Harris tried to do it with um, uh, the moral landscape where he tried to say that science can give you the objective basis for morality. But ultimately, you know, the whole book was question begging. The entire thing was question begging. Mm -hmm. and, he was and he was called to task on it because it failed. Um, in that respect, because science has its limits. And I think, just like a lot of things have their limits, um, and if we recognize the limits of science, it can only tell you, by definition, about the physical material world. It can't tell you the why questions, and it can't tell you the ought questions. That's, that's another realm altogether. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about this, because as my listeners hopefully know, we're talking with Abdu Murray right now, in case you must have the author of a grand central question. And since he's talking about scientism, that kind of relates to what's going to be going on next week. Because if you're listening here next week, we're going to have James K. Dew Jr. and Mark Foreman on here together. We're going to be talking about a new book they've written called How Do We Know? A Christian's Guide to Epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. And I'm sure we'll be touching on scientism some in that podcast. So I urge you all to come back next week, learn a little bit about how we know what we know. I'm sure they can take us a lot further with scientism than we're going here. It's a great book and I advise you to come back. Uh, for now, we're still here with Abdu Murray. We're talking about the book The Grand Central Question. And since we brought back atheism a little bit, let's try and connect these together. Do you agree that it's quite likely that the reason the New Age movement is making such a big hit here in America and elsewhere is because atheism left a vacuum that needed to be filled? Oh, you know, Nick, I, I do agree. I, I, I agree with that statement. And I mm -hmm. think that human beings are incurably, incurably spiritual. We are incurably religious to some degree. That's why I think statements like spiritual but not religious mm -hmm. are just, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. You're religious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you say you're spiritual, you're religious to some degree. You yeah. might be you have made up your own religion, but you're still religious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that human beings are incurably that way. Um, that's why we have atheistic churches, for heaven's sake. I think that um, uh, there is a need to connect and a need for community and a need to, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. I'm not saying that it means that we that there is something like that. I'm just saying we have this need within us. Mm -hmm. So spirit, so, so New Age spirituality is, is a way to connect without saying, oh, I go to church thus and so, or I'm Catholic, or I'm uh, Protestant, or you know, I'm Baptist, or Episcopalian, or whatever it might be. It's a way to break with tradition, yet may, maintain the traditional sense of spirituality within ourselves. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because when C.S. Lewis said, you know, that we have to be careful not to succumb to our horror of the same old thing, Christianity is also often considered the same old thing. But then when you look at other worldviews, and I've looked at all of them uh, in terms of the worldviews and also the religious expressions of those worldviews, look at atheism. What does it tell you? There is no God, therefore you have to be him. That's why Nietzsche said, 
What sacred games must we invent? What rites of atonement do we have to come up with now that God has bled to death under our knives? So if there's no God, we become him. What does pantheism tell you? Mm. You become God. You are God. Not only do you become him, but you have to realize you already are him. Mm -hmm. And what does Islam tell you? Islam tells you that if you do enough good things, you will please him. That the power is within you. All these religious systems tell you that we are the solution and that we have these, this ability. Christianity is the one that's unique and that it tells you that that's not true. Everyone mm -hmm. else tells you you need works, you need to educate yourself out of this mess, you need to meditate yourself into divinity, into divinity, or you need to work yourself into God's good graces. And Christianity tells you, no, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And it's unique in that sense. So if any one of these worldviews is not the same old thing, it's the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, because of that fact, because we do recognize a need for spirituality, but we also want to justify ourselves, uh, atheism justifies ourselves, and so does pantheism. But pantheism holds on to the spiritual at the same time, which is why you're seeing its, its resurgence. Yeah. And uh, it's a, such, a, such an intense growth. Yeah, I'm also thinking that it's because when atheism comes, it says, there is no special revelation coming from outside. None of the theistic arguments work. Reason can't tell you anything about God, and people still have a vacuum for God, so they say, hmm, no revelation, no reason. What can tell me about God? Well, nothing but feeling and experience. Mm, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. you, you look inward. I mean, I actually remember uh, reading something. Someone, I was uh, at, a, at a law office back when I was practicing law, because we're doing full-time ministry now, but when I was practicing law, I walked by and I saw some of these, you know, like, postings on someone's cubicle, um, and he said something, it said something like this, I looked to the Christian cross and could not find him, I looked to science but he was not there, and I looked to the, the mosques of Islam but he was nowhere to be seen, it's only when I looked inward and saw him inside me through my emotion and my experience that I finally found God, like, mm -hmm. whoa, I mean, you, you, you're, hitting it, you're hitting it right on the head, it's, he's nowhere out there to be objectively known. Only mm -hmm. subjectively felt. Mm -hmm. And this, I think it's because that, honestly, even amongst Christians, we don't really take theistic thinking too seriously. We, we don't really sit down and think about God a lot. We worship Him, we sing to Him, we praise Him, we thank Him, but do we really think about Him? It's a, it's a great question because, you know, I, I recall, this is interesting, I recall uh, as a Muslim, young Muslim guy, mm. um, I, I played a lot of basketball. I'm really tall. I'm six foot eight. Mm. I played college basketball. And I would always go into these playgrounds where no one was in the middle of the summer and I would just practice. I'd play forever. But while I did it, I would actually be talking out loud to God as a Muslim. Because Muslims have a very ritualistic prayer, but it's also a form of prayer called dua, where yeah. you, you beseech God and you come to him more on a personal level. And I would go and I would sit in this one play structure where no one was there. And I would just talk out loud to God, praising Him, um, but also just thinking about how grand and powerful and amazing and infinite and all-knowing and all these things. I, I would think deeply about these things. So I think ultimately, ultimately is what led me to Christian faith, mm -hmm. that, that basis in wanting to think about God. I think that we, 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 we sometimes um, form a false dichotomy between worship and thought, our thought life. Right. I think I think our thought life is a, a very intense form of worship. Oh yes. 
We need, we need to recapture that idea as Christians. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't deny it now. Marriage here that my wife's the more emotional one, and I'm the more intellectual one. I like to say I'm the head, she's the heart. Mm. I mean, if someone comes for counseling and such, I say, yeah, uh, is the one you need to talk to, because she'll have a whole lot more empathy, honestly. <laughs> for me, I'm sitting there thinking, hearing what you're saying, I'm wondering, is your theology accurate at this point? Is your... <laughs> <laughs> well, together you make a good person. Yeah, and, and so... Thing for me when it comes to worship, if I hear, if I read a good book on, say, historical Jesus, it's like, wow, this is, this is what worship is like. And we, we've been fortunate to find a very good church because she went one with good contemporary music. And I said, yeah, okay, I get that, but I need a, a church that takes the life of the mind seriously. And we found one. I mean, what I tell people about churches, yeah, you can even text in a question during the service, and a pastor comes out after the service and answers your question. And, and I saw, okay, I'm sold. I like that. <laughs> that see, that would be great. I haven't been to one of those yet. I've been to, as you know, we uh, we we speak at different places, and so um, uh, Q and A's are part of that church service. But it's a regular part of the church service. I'll tell you what, that'd be. That'd be, that'd be something to go see. I think you would attract a lot more men, actually, mm -hmm. um, when we engage. Not because women aren't intellectual. Yeah. It's because men, I think, feel like the church checks their brains at the door mm -hmm. when they get there. Uh, Stuart McAllister from RGIM, a good friend of mine, always makes the comment that the Bible tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds and sort of a, a contemporary feel-goodism tells you to be transformed by the removal of your mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not biblical. But the, the Bible is all about the mind and renewing of our minds. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's funny. We're not Mr. Spock. Right. So logic alone doesn't dictate, but we're also not big balls of emotion. Right. So that emotions alone should dictate. We're whole people. Yeah. Which is, I'm trying to c convey that in the book, too, that there's ways to connect with people um, uh, through the heart and the mind. And mm -hmm. what I think is the intellectual argument given well actually touches the heart at the same time. Yeah. And when we're doing this kind of thing that uh, I like to follow Aristotle's rules where you present for reason, then you go to the emotion, and then you go to what the corresponding action should be. Because too often in, in our churches, it seems like we're trying to work people up to have a feeling, an experience, or something like that. And like, if you have that feeling, if you have that experience, great. But what if you don't? Yeah. And that's okay, too. And what if you do it in another worldview, by the way? I mean, yeah. how, how, many, how many times have you and I run into people from a different worldview? Uh, Richard Carrier is a good example. Richard Carrier will tell you he felt liberated and enlightened and free when he became an atheist. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you say, no, uh Yeah. He can say, yeah, I did. So the whole, you know, emotive aspect doesn't prove anybody right or wrong. It just means that that's what you felt. Yeah, it's objectively yeah. true that you felt that way. But yeah. that's all that's objectively true about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep thinking that whenever Easter comes, and if I'm in a church that sings, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, I'm sitting right here and thinking, okay, I'm about to scream <laughs> at this point, because if you keep going with this, there are some guys who are going to come to your door someday that are called Mormons, and they're going to tell you what they know in their heart as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, there's a, every major religious uh, view has a sect uh, of people who, uh, even Muslims, 
who would apply, who would appeal to a sort of emotional um, or a subjective uh, experience. The Sufis are Muslims, you know, the, right? Sufis, yeah, absolutely. Sufis do that. You're absolutely right. Um, and even even some rank and file Muslims will tell you just pray about whether the Quran is true. Mm-hmm. If you have an open mind and an open heart, you'll see that the Quran is miraculous and it's true. Well, that's not a good test for truth. Um, and even they know it because if you, if you get a probe, they'll give you sort of rational arguments in favor of the Quran, um, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So, uh, but yeah, I think we need to have both. I think that God has made us so that we we do react. Emotions are good things. Um, yeah, and they in, are. intellect is a good thing, mm-hmm. but uh, the abuse of both is, is a bad thing. Right. Um, uh, so we need to have a, an integration of, of, of both of those things, and uh, mm-hmm. um, I think the gospel uniquely does that. I don't think any other world really does that. I think we're tricking ourselves if we say that we find some kind of uh, emotional kick out of atheism. Yeah. Really? Um, where is it exactly? And you can tell yourself these things, but okay, fine. Ultimately, I, I don't see how it's possible that you can find that in atheism. But then again, I think that in Christianity, you find intellectual satisfaction and emotional satisfaction. Yeah, and um, I think that we need to probably return to this idea about the uniqueness of God. There is a God outside of us. I mean, sometimes we actually forget that. But I remember just a couple of months ago, I was driving down the interstate going to the men's group from our church, and it, it was a time when it just sent me like, yeah, you know what, you really do believe in this stuff, you really do believe there's a God out there who's created everything you see around you, and knowing that you believe he's done miracles, that he's directly interacted in the universe, and that really is something incredible. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's awe-inspiring, it yeah. really is awe-inspiring. I, I love uh, Psalm one thirty nine, where the Bible tells us that He knit us together. You know, He knit us together. That's an interesting way to put it. He doesn't say I manufactured you or I built you, or I constructed you. I, I knit you together. That's, that's that's a beautiful way to put it. Because when you look at, like, for instance, the science, which you're going to go into, I think in, in the next uh, in, in your next episode, which um, uh, I think is just going to be a fabulous one. Um, the way in which DNA comes together, the way in which we see the, the inner workings and the weavings of these molecules that wouldn't come together through random chance nor through physical necessity, but have to be knit together. The Bible tells us that. That's a gorgeous way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you were made or you were you were designed. It's that you were knit. And that's so much more. I mean, I, I think about, you know, I have a lot of sweaters, Nick. Um, I like sweaters. We had a lot of them, and they were all built, or they were all put together in factories, um, and they were all you know, one size fits all. But I'll tell you, the one sweater I love the most is the one I can't wear. It's the one my mother made for me uh, to bring me home from the hospital after I was born, mm-hmm. because she knit it together, thinking about me. And I think that uh, the, the, the sheer fact of the differentness of all of our DNA, and the sheer fact of the, the intricacies of the specified complexity in DNA is a hint that God knits us together. So when he makes us, he doesn't, he doesn't say, here's another human. He says, here's Nick Peters, here's Abdu Murray. You know, that's what, he, that, that's what he's doing, and I think that's fabulous. So it's intellectually stimulating, but it's also imaginatively, you know, just um, uh, attractive as well. Yeah, if my wife's able to hear what you're saying in the next room here, I'm sure she's smiling a <laughs> lot at this point because Psalm 139... The realization that very passage that you cited was the passage that caused her to bend her knee to Christ. Oh, wow. 
Well, that's wow. Yeah, and that it, it is something very special for us since we're both Aspergers on the spectrum, and there was a time I'm sure she could have looked in her life, thought, "Why did I have to have this? Why was I made this way?" And lo and behold, that's the thing that got me into her life. So that's. Yeah, it's wow. got some difficulties, but I suppose there's a good end to this and that you can look at the way we live that's different and say, because of that, we can really do what we can to reach other people who mm -hmm. probably feel neglected or feel like their mistakes and such. And it's really important for us to reach people on the disabled community. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, wow, that's amazing. That mm -hmm. really is. And, uh, and that perspective you're seeing um, is, 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 a, is a biblical perspective mm -hmm. and a, 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 I dare I say it, a Christianly humanistic perspective. Mm -hmm. Not in the sense that humans are the, the most important thing, but that you have value. You and your wife have value because you're human beings and not for any other reason, not because you're valuable to someone else. Right. You have value because you're human beings and then God, and the, the, the destiny God has put before you or the, the, the reasons why and you struggle with whatever it is you struggle with because other people are in view because they're also inherently valuable. That's a really amazing, that's a poetry that I don't think any other worldview can weave. Mm. Yeah, that's even why she started an anti-bullying thing on mm. Facebook. And I'm going to be very careful about how you phrase this because a lot of things construed as bullying aren't, but it's to reach people who have been hurt by the snide remarks of others meant yeah. just to hurt them. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. We're wow. we have this point in the show where I like to remind people about how we do this because if you're able to listen to this, you're probably realizing this format seems a bit different from what we usually have. I'm not hearing the commercials. I'm not hearing the chance to call in, and that's because we don't have a studio line anymore, and that's because of a lack of funding coming in. And the reason we require all these kinds of things is because. Everything we do here at Deeper Waters is supported by people like you. It's supported by your donations, and when we don't have those, we're not able to function at a full capacity. If you really like the Deeper Waters podcast, you really want to see us keep going and be able to call in and ask your questions, well, be sure to support us. You can go to my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com and click on the link, and you'll find a way that you can donate there. And also, you can make a donation to us through Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike Lacona, my father-in-law. And you go there and make a donation and say, hey, I want this to go to Nick Peters, I want this to go to Deeper Waters. That is the best way, because we will get every penny from that donation. They will make sure of that. And in fact, I've just written an e-book with my ministry partner that's come out recently. We're planning on doing a more expanded version of it for... Uh, paperback or hardback sometime, but it's uh, defining inerrancy, which is responding to the charges against Mike Lacona from Geisler and others. And it's really a great review. It's four bucks on Kinder, and some of the proceeds from it will go to support Deeper Water. So, hey, you're going to be getting a good book. It doesn't cost a lot. Some of the proceeds go to us. What do you got to lose with that one? And if you get a copy of Defying and Inerrancy, please leave us a positive review. We want to know how much you like the book. If you didn't like it, please don't say anything whatsoever. <laughs> um, and uh, 
And do you get your own ministry, Embrace for Truth? Uh, tell us about Embrace for Truth and how can people support it? And thank you for that. Um, and I, I encourage folks to go to, to, to go to those websites you mentioned and to Mike's website, Risen Jesus, and, and donate to your to your great podcast. We'll keep it on the air and keep that ability. Thank keep you. people calling in and doing those things. Um, our ministry, Embrace the Truth, is an apologetics evangelism ministry. I'm not. I'm an apologist, but I, I'm really an evangelist who uses apologetics mm -hmm. um, to do it. Uh, to integrate that heart and mind connection. Um, they can find out more about us, what we're doing, at embracethetruth.org. Mm -hmm. All one word, uh, embracethetruth.org. There's resources tabs. There's free stuff. There's free articles. There's free videos, but also a, a, a web store to uh, buy some uh, some of our products, including the book, Grand Fiscal Question, um, which you can get anywhere. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Or you can get it from our website. Uh, one thing I wouldn't mind mentioning, Nick, if I could, is that if you go to the website, grandcentralquestion.com, and just tell us um, your name and email address, uh, we will send you a video, uh, sorry, a link to four free additional videos that go through some additional arguments for God's existence and how we can reach out to our pantheistic and Muslim friends, and also a, um, a, a comprehensive study guide for the book, and they're all free. So grandcentralquestion.com is for the book uh, and how to get the free materials. But embrace the truth.org is how you can go and support our ministry and get some of the other free materials we have there. Okay. Well, let's get back into the book because now we're going to be talking about where I think the book really shines the most, and that's your critique of Islam. Mm. Now, um, you talk about how when Muslims debate sovereignty, say the Bible has been changed, the Bible is unreliable, you can't trust the Bible. And you found a very interesting source that says the Bible hasn't been changed, the Bible is reliable, and you can trust it. Mm. Uh, I like the way you put that, Nick. Yeah. That's good, because it is an interesting source, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so what, yeah. what was this source that all our Christian apologists listening are going to want out and get a copy of so they can demonstrate to their Muslims that they should trust the Bible? Absolutely. It's the Quran. It is the Quran. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it is. It just tickles me when the way you put it is so great. But every Christian apologist who's even remotely serious about reaching their Muslim friends should own and read a, a Quran. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up believing that the Bible, see, the Muslims believe this. Islam teaches them that the Bible was once God's revelation, that the five books of Moses, the Psalms mm -hmm. of David, and the Gospel of Jesus, and maybe even a few other books, because they mentioned other prophets as well, were all once divine inspiration from God but that they became corrupted over time to contain these horrible blasphemies like the Trinity and the Incarnation and the Atonement. Mm -hmm. um, and the Quran in the 7th century in Saudi Arabia was revealed by God to fix all of that, all that corruption, bring people back to true monotheism. And I believed that growing up, and I would argue that growing up, until I finally saw, I read the Quran many times, but remember when I, when I read those verses from the Bible that said tradition is not important, truth is important, my mind had shifted slightly. I started to read more critically. And the Quran says in numerous places, and I'll just read, you, read for you a couple, that the Bible has not been changed, and it would not be changed. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the Quran says in the fifth chapter, in verses 46 to 47, uh, in verse 47 specifically, it says, let the people of the gospel, which of course is a euphemism for Christians, let the people of the gospel judge by what God has revealed therein. And whoso does not judge by what God has revealed, such are the evildoers or the rebellious. 
Well, here's the problem. Why would the Quran tell Christians to go judge by a book that was horribly corrupted? Mm -hmm. Of course it wouldn't do that. Verse 68 of the same chapter, of the fifth chapter, says, O people of the book, which of course is a way to talk about Christians and Jews, you have no foundation unless you stand upon the Torah and the Gospel and all the revelations from God. Well, how can they stand on it if it's corrupted? Mm -hmm. See, I found out something. It isn't that the Quran teaches the corruption of Scripture. It's that Islam has taught the corruption of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Because for the most part, in the early centuries, there's a bit of, except for maybe a couple of commentators, for the most part in the early centuries of Islam, Muslims had basically assumed the Bible and the Quran agreed on things. And it was just Christian interpretations that were wrong. But then they got a copy in the 9th and 10th centuries. They got copies of the, of the Bible in Arabic finally, read them, and said, oh my goodness, these are different. And they're really different. So it can't be that the Bible, that the Quran is wrong. It's got to be that the Bible is wrong. And so this doctrine of corruption really started to flourish mm -hmm. uh, in the 9th and 10th centuries. But early on in Islam, that wasn't the case. Most Muslims said, no, absolutely not. God's word would never be changed. Mm -hmm. Even the most... Um, uh, well-read commentators on the Quran uh, who were Muslims said, no, God's words have never been changed. The Bible exists today as it always has. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to, and, and by the way, this is something that um, I wrestled with this specific idea in my head. There was a dilemma that I was facing. See, I had read this, and then I realized this is what Al Gore calls an inconvenient truth, uh, because I suddenly realized that the Quran I've been reading tells me that the Bible is right. Well, if the Bible is right, then the Quran is wrong because the Quran and the Bible contradict each other. Mm -hmm. But if the Bible is wrong, the Quran is still wrong because the Bible the, it says the Bible is right. Mm -hmm. so, so I've got a really serious problem here. But then I, there's a fundamental issue. This is part of the grand central question for Islam. There's this phrase, Allahu Akbar. All, you know, everyone knows this phrase, Allahu Akbar. And unfortunately, when you watch the news, something explodes whenever someone says Allahu Akbar. Um, it's, it's not really a ch terrorist chant. It literally is a, it is a phrase that literally means God is greater. For the Muslim mind, God is the greatest possible being, sort of an Anselmian idea. He is, he is the greatest possible being, and there's no being greater than him. Um, and he's all-powerful, he's trustworthy, he's all these things. But here's the problem, and I was facing this as a Muslim. If the Bible was once God's revelation, but became corrupted, there's only two possibilities. Either God could not stop the corruption, or he would not stop the corruption. If he could not stop the corruption of the Bible, then he's not all-powerful. And if he's not all-powerful, then he's not great. And the phrase, Allahu Akbar, isn't true. And so no Muslim would agree with that, that he couldn't stop the corruption of the Bible. Which leaves them only with option two, which is that he could have, but chose not to stop the corruption of the Bible. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, that's not any better. Because the only way we know anything about God in terms of who, how to worship him correctly, what certain doctrines are, who, what he's done and who he is, is through his self-revelation. And if he could have stopped his self-revelation from becoming corrupted, but chose not to, then that means that he took his hands off the wheel and let his self-revelation get into such horrible disrepair that millions, if not billions of people went to their deaths believing horrible, damnable blasphemies about him. And it's his fault. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, why believe that he would protect the Quran from corruption either? Mm -hmm.
Because if he's not trustworthy enough to do that, then why believe anything he says? Just chuck the whole affair, because there's no way to know if, he, if, if he, what, he, what he's telling you is true or is, is preserved, if he can't protect it. So as a Muslim who believes in a God who is all-powerful and trustworthy, I could not believe that the Bible was corrupted. It was mm -hmm. just not an option open to me. And it's not an option open to any Muslim who takes that seriously. And before we get into defense of the Bible, what about the Quran? I think you said earlier that the Quran, the text, isn't reliable. It hasn't been handed down. Could you explain that some? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> almost every Muslim you talk to will tell you that the Quran we have today is the exact same in every letter, vowel, whatever it is that we had originally with the, with, when Muhammad finished the corpus of the Quran during his lifetime, and that was it. There's, there's numerous problems with this, and these come from Muslim sources, by the way. Uh, some of the most uh, important Muslim sources are what are called the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H. And the Hadith, of course, are collections of Muhammad's sayings, but also some sayings and some actions by some of his companions. And what those sources tell us is that um, when Muhammad died, there were um, some, some, at least allegedly, some uh, copies of the Quran written down. But as the empire began to expand, and it began to expand very rapidly, mostly there was no copies of the Quran written. They were mostly memorized. And those who memorized the Quran were dying either of old age or in these, these battles. Because after Muhammad died, many of the people who converted to Islam left Islam because Muhammad was dead. And so these, they fought to keep the apostates from leaving. And so a lot of the memorizers of the Quran were dying. So that what was being written down wasn't being faithfully transmitted. And the, um, uh, the uh, caliph, the, 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 the caliph, uh, his name is Uthman, um, he commissioned a man named Zaid to go out and collect all the manuscripts, because they were aware that they were now, all the manuscripts were very wildly different. They were different in, in the number of chapters they had or what they included in those chapters. He said, go collect all the ones you can bring them back to the central government, we will decide which is the authentic one and we will burn all the rest. And he did exactly that. He tried to get as many copies as he could and he didn't collect all of them, but then Uthman decided which ones he wanted. And some of Muhammad's most important companions, his closest companions, had versions that Uthman did not agree with and they would not give him the, their version saying, no, mine is the true one. But, but then... <laughs> Um, Uthman says, this is the one I want to make the official one. Uh, Uthman burns all the rest of the ones he can find, and they have a standardized text. And then it happens again later, I think not too long after that, the same thing happens again, a re-standardization of the texts. So all the variants in terms of manuscripts were burned. But it's interesting because recently in a mosque in Sana, Yemen, uh, they discovered the Sana manuscripts of the Quran. And these are the oldest known manuscripts we have, and they are different than our current manuscripts. Now, not, there's not a wild, huge differences, but uh, in what we were able to study, because once they found these and they realized there was differences, the government of Yemen snatched them up and wouldn't let anybody look at them anymore. So no one's able to study these things anymore. Um, but uh, even that, 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 that paltry view we had, showed us that the, the Quran, the oldest manuscripts of the Quran, do not agree with what our standard Quran is today. Yeah, you said this was found in Muslim sources. For anyone who's interested in reading, can you name some of the Muslim scholars that will back this up? Sure, like uh, there's um, uh, Bukhari, uh, B-U-K-H-A-R-I, is one of the important sources on the um, 
origin of the Quran. Um, uh, he, he, in fact, he, he is the collection of all the hadiths. Uh, B-U-K-H-A-R-I. Now, he's long since dead, obviously. He's, you know, uh, one of the earlier hadith collectors. But he collected the what most Muslims would consider the authentic hadith traditions about Muhammad. And it's all founded there. Um, there's also um, uh, the um, uh, uh, Sayuti, S-A-U-T-I. Uh, sorry, S-A-Y-U-T-I. Uh, in, in his works, he also has... Um, uh, some of the collections of this stuff as well. Um, and then you see there's a, a, a good little book uh, called In Search of the Original Quran, written by a Muslim uh, whose name is Manher Sfar, S-F-A-R. And he talks about the various serious problems we have with regard to the Quran we have today. And this is a Muslim scholar talking. Um, so I would look into that one too. It's called The, the Search for the Original Quran by, by Sfar, S-F-A-R. Okay. Now, what about someone though who will say that, okay, well, that doesn't exempt for Christian about I me. Mean, hey, Bart Ehrman, he's come out there and he's exposed all the changes that have taken place. Mm, yeah, well, um, uh, there's a couple of things on that. The, the first thing that, that that would be, I think that would be a, an objection that an atheist could make or a skeptic or an agnostic could make. But I think going back, a Muslim has, a, though they, they love to use Bart Ehrman, they love using Bart Ehrman. Uh, for their, their arguments, um, but uh, they really can't because there's still a very serious theological problem that they have to contend with. And again, it's the idea that, okay, let me tell you, let's assume that it is changed. What does that tell you about God? Because your Quran says it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if the, Quran, if the Bible has been changed, then your Quran is wrong. Are you willing to go there? Mm -hmm. um, and so that I would establish that first. But then let's look at what Bart Ehrman actually says. And of course, there's been you know, a virtual cottage industry of books responding to uh, Ehrman's challenges to the authenticity of, of the Bible in terms of its, uh, its transmission and its alleged errors and um, contradictions. Um, I think if we have the mindset where we're going to look for errors, we're going to find them. But if we have the mindset of saying, let's give it the benefit of the doubt, or at least, let, let, let's be neutral on the topic and say, do, uh, uh, is there an explanation? Then we can see an explanation for some of the things that we think might be problematic in terms of contradictions. Mm -hmm. But here's what's not been changed, and this is an important thing I think, Nick. That um, I know, I know, Mike talks about this, and he does such a great job. Him and Gary Habermas do such a great job of this. Is saying what is the central message of of, of the Christian faith? Mm -hmm. Central claim is that Jesus is the divine Son of God who came to die for the sins of the world and then rose from the dead to prove he was right. And the, the and none of that has been changed. That's always been the, the church's teachings. Um, so if you have little, oh, maybe he didn't heal this many in this city, or the, this, this much bread wasn't done in this city, but this, you know, and all those things, well, big deal. In the end, did he die and rise from the dead? And if he died and rose from the dead, then what he said about himself should be believed. Mm. And that's where the historical issues come into play as well in terms of the resurrection. Um, I'm not saying we should skirt those issues. I'm just yeah. saying that, we shouldn't be terrified of them because ultimately the, uh, the resurrection story is the story we hinge ourselves. You know, it, it, the, the Bible doesn't say, believe on Second Timothy and thou shalt be saved. You know, um, because for the, first, for the earliest Christians, there was no Second Timothy. It didn't exist yet. <laughs> it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that, 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 that said it all. Mm -hmm. You know, when uh, I was on Peter Bogosian's Facebook page before I got blocked from there, 
He yes. actually put up a Facebook status about reading misquoting Jesus and saying, Yeah, but Christian apologists aren't going to be able to respond to this one. Yeah, we were all over that one. It's like, yeah, it's about time you finally got it. And, and so I myself say, yeah, um, Miss Grown Jesus read it. Here's my review. Here are some of the problems with it and such. It seems like the Muslims, when they argue about them and they think sadly about too many Christians, and unfortunately this is probably true for too many of them, they've never even heard of Barterman, and yet the things in misquoting Jesus, the scholars were looking at this book and saying, yeah, and, exactly and, right. I mean, knowing that the woman caught in adultery isn't in the Gospel of John, that Mark has a long ending added on, it wasn't exactly breaking news. Right, right, well, and this is the thing, you know, it's funny because, uh, in some senses, when Christians are ignorant of, are ignorant of these ideas, like, okay, the ending of Mark, or the, 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 the Kama Yohanayim, and, um, you know, the woman caught in adultery, and all these things, um, you point this out to, like, a, your pastor, for example, and you think, oh my goodness, really? I've preached a million sermons on the woman caught in, adul caught in adultery. And I like the way Dan Wallace said, all, all I'm telling you is it's not in the Bible. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, it didn't really happen. Yeah. It doesn't even mean that it's not a good tradition, it just means that it's not in the Bible. That's all it means. Um, but our acknowledgement of these facts actually gives us more confidence that we know what it does say. Because, contrast it with the Muslim. The Muslim, for example, can't say what the original really said because he has no comparisons. All the variant manuscripts were destroyed. So how can you know what the original was? If I wrote one letter and had you copy it and then had 10,000 10, others copy it, and then my original was destroyed and those 10,000 copies were destroyed, how do I know you copied it correctly? There's no way to, to check it. Mm -hmm. But with the Bible, we know these things. So the fact that we know, interestingly enough, we know that Mark um, Mark's ending is is up for up for questioning, and I think probably is a shorter and the short ending is the preferred ending, not the not the you know the ones in brackets mm -hmm. in our Bibles that you know that woman caused adultery and all these things. The fact that we know that those aren't in there tells us something. You can only know what's not in there if you know what should be. Yeah. If anyone's also looking for a lot more detailed information on this, go back and listen to our program from April 19th when I interviewed Dan Wallace on the topic of the text for New Testament, which, as I'm sure you know, dude, Dan Wallace is just the master in this oh, area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had Dan on my show a couple of times myself and, mm -hmm. and sat down and talked with him. And, you know, um, uh, I was there when... Um, uh, at some of the Days of Discovery through Josh McDowell, they had some of these Days of Discovery. We're talking about some of the newer manuscripts and uncovering some of these things. And my goodness, what we're finding, what an exciting time uh, to be a biblical scholar. We're finding yeah. so many things that are just staggering the imagination. And uh, I'm looking forward to some of the published works coming out talking about these early, early manuscripts we're, we're uncovering. Well, what are some things that our listeners can be doing when we're talking with Muslims and trying to evangelize this. I mean, I know when I'm dialoguing with Muslims, sadly it seems Muslims are some of the most people who are the most impervious to the to reasonable arguments. Mm. You know, it's it's funny in every other context they're not, mm -hmm. but in this one, in this one they are. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I'll tell you, I was one of those same people. Um, I, I think a couple of things, Nick. Um, uh, the first thing is, in the prologue of my book, when I talk about the cost of truth and how powerful that can be, um, that truth has consequences, I think when we're witnessing to our Muslim friends, we have to keep that in mind. 
because the consequences for them are huge. It's not just the loss of family or the loss of culture or the loss of uh, whatever it might be. There's also an intense loss of identity. I mean, being Muslim is who you are, even nominal Muslims. In other words, those for whom it, if, if, if Islam was a crime, they couldn't be convicted of it because there's no evidence of their uh, being a Muslim, really, because they don't practice it. They would sit down in an argument with you and fight to the verbal death <laughs> over whether or not Christianity or Islam is true, yet they don't practice it. Why? It's because Islam is who they are. It's their identity. So when we're talking with them and we're offering them responses on some of these issues, they don't hear, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. They don't hear, the Trinity makes more sense. They hear loss of family, loss of job, loss of community, loss of life, or loss of identity. That's what they're hearing first. And so they have to have this sort of recalcitrance to our, to our efforts. Um, but also there's a tremendous amount of pride. See, Muslims live in not in a true, truth and false paradigm. They live in an honor and shame paradigm. Oh yes. They, be they believe in truth and truth and falsity. They believe in that, but truth can be sacrificed on the altar of honor mm -hmm. um, sometimes, and, and that's a hard nut to crack because how do you get around it with someone like that? Um, which is why, in grand central question, what I was trying to do was say, find out something that a Muslim cares about and would have to agree with you on, mm -hmm. like God's greatness, which is the central doctrine of Islam, and say. Okay, so your view of God's greatness is this. I think it's inadequate for the following reasons, but I want you to worship a God who is great. Can I show you how the Christian, how Christianity, the Trinity, the Incarnation, these things, actually show Him to truly be great? And we can have a, we can have a, we can find our common ground, which is God's greatness, from which to jump off of, and now begin to talk about our differences in intellectually satisfying ways. We can never forget that there's a tremendous price to pay. As Christians, we have to be willing to walk with our Muslim friends in the midst of those trials because they're going to have it rough. And they're all thinking, okay, fine, when it gets tough for me, where will mm -hmm. you be? When mm -hmm. I lose these things, where will you be? Um, I often ask uh, people of every stripe, atheists, doesn't matter who it is, but especially my Muslim friends, um, this question when I begin the dialogue. Let me assume I could show you Christianity was true. And let me assume you agreed with me. Let me assume further that you gave your life to Christ right now. Mm -hmm. What would happen next? I let it sit there. And then they say, what do you mean? Like, well, well, what would happen with your family when you told them? What would happen with your community? Mm -hmm. And then I'd let them fill in the blanks and all the bad things. And then I'd say a follow-up question. Isn't that a really powerful reason to be closed-minded? Are you willing to consider the fact that those things are so powerful that they might keep you from wanting to agree with me? Mm -hmm. um, they certainly would be for me, and I know that from personal experience that they were. Yeah. That was some of the reasons why it took me nine years to come to faith, of steady witness and steady study. Not because the answers were hard to find, it's because the answers were hard to accept. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also been told that when we're dialoguing with Muslims, we should avoid saying anything negative about Muhammad. I mean, it could be you've got all the information war about Muhammad and his relationship with his wives, such as Aisha and such, but... Mm -hmm. Don't go that route. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see a value in that. I really don't. If if um, uh, you're looking for a way to build a wall, that's the fastest way to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a way to build a springboard by which they can go in and, and maybe dive into the pool of the gospel, um, that's not the springboard you want them to use because they won't go, go, go near it. They'll eventually uh, consider you a bigot and then leave. 
Um, there might be a time and a place for it. If you could develop a really strong relationship with your Muslim friend uh, over years, or you feel that maybe they're, they're there now, that they can possibly be thinking critically about these things, then maybe, possibly, bring those things up. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if you're beginning a discussion, or if you're even a couple of years into the discussion, um, for, by, for, all, by, for heaven's sake, don't bring that stuff up. They might ask you, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would try to venture and say, okay, well, what did he say about Jesus? And, and get, get it, get it to back, back to Jesus. But try to spend our time not criticizing Muhammad. He is a source of tremendous pride for Muslims, especially Arab Muslims, because he's their prophet. He's the Arab prophet. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a tremendous sense of loyalty uh, because it's honorable to be loyal to him. And so that's why you have people getting really excited and hot under the collar when he's criticized. And for people who also want to know more about an honor-shame culture, I command you all better. We had Randy Richards on here on Mar- on May 17th talking about the misreading scripture of Western eyes, and we had a good discussion about honor and shame there. Yeah. Well, when you read the story of the, uh, the prodigal son, Mm-hmm. Uh, you really have to look at it through Middle, Middle Eastern eyes mm-hmm. um, and a whole honor and shame culture and why it was scandalous for the, the father to pick up and run at his, uh, at his wayward son. Yeah, and why it was scandalous at the very beginning for the son to say, give me my portion of the inheritance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Now, what about awesome with of Muslims? What about topics like 9-11 and terrorism and such? Mm-hmm. That, no, that's a tough one because that stuff uh, almost can't help but come up. Um, I would avoid bringing it up uh, to the extent that I could because then they might be thinking that you think they're like that. Mm-hmm. And by far, most of the Muslims that we run into and talk to do not share those same sentiments towards the West or towards uh, non-Muslims. Some mm-hmm. do. It's a growing number, unfortunately, but most of them don't. Most of them are not sitting around you know, twisting their mustaches, thinking of ways to blow up airports. They're just regular people like you and I who want to get a good job, have kids, have those kids get good jobs, marry people, and then have grandkids. It's sort of the, the paradigm. Um, if those things come up, though, I think one way to steer the conversation in, po- in, in positive ways is to say, well, what do you think of those things, and can you tell me why, um, uh, as a Muslim, you disagree with them? Mm-hmm. Can I tell you why, as a Christian, I disagree with them? And then if we go into it, because the Quran does have some, some, some passages that seem to justify that behavior. And so you're, you're, you, most Muslims live in a state of dissonance where they don't want to believe the Quran says those things, but then they realize that it does. And it makes them uncomfortable. But at the same time, if we can just point to, I think, um, the, 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 the Christian basis to say those things are wrong, we do ourselves a service because we don't want them to leave Islam. We want them to come to Christ. Right. Hmm. You know, what about topics like, you know, I know we've only got a few minutes left to discuss this, what about topics like the Trinity? Because these are, this is a very big one for me. Remember, one of the most powerful objections I get is where your God pooped. Man, yeah. That, that's <laughs> literally the objection. I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to, I used to make it. I used to give that objection. Um, uh, the Trinity is one of those, the Trinity and Incarnation are those two objections that Muslims love to raise because they're, Christian, Christians are very ill-equipped to respond mm-hmm. um, because they don't understand those, those, those doctrines. And I think if we get into a very uh, nuanced approach and a, and a robust approach to understand the Trinity, we can actually talk to our Muslim friends 
about how these things highlight God's greatness. Really quickly on the Trinity, for example, the Trinity, Muslims say, it, 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 it insults God's greatness because it ascribes partners to God. That the Son and the Holy Spirit are somehow partners to God the Father, and he needs partners. If he needs anything, he's not perfect and not all-powerful. And the Quran says he is self-subsistent. He is perfect. He needs no one. Okay, great. I agree mm -hmm. with all that, all those statements. But here's the thing. On a Muslim concept of God as being a monad, one in his nature and one in his person, he does need things beyond himself to be who he is. Because the Quran refers to him as Al-Rahman and Al-Rahim and Al-Wadud. And all these words mean the beneficent and the merciful and the loving and the kind and all these things. These are all relational qualities. These are the things that God is. God is these things in Islam. And if that's the case, then he's an intensely relational being, at least to some degree. And if that's the case, he's also the only uncreated being. Now, if that's the case, then there was a state of affairs in which God was alone. And if he wanted to be relational in, in some sense, to be who he is, he needs creation to exist outside of himself, to be who he is. That's a God who needs something. Mm -hmm. That's a God who's dependent upon something beyond himself, as opposed to the Trinitarian God, who exists as one in his nature and three in his persons, and they're all distinct. So the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son eternally relate to each other in community. And they eternally share the same being. So they're one being in three persons, and they exist in a, in a relationship in community from eternity. So God was never alone. He never needed anybody to be who he is. So when the Bible tells you in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love, that makes sense. Because God is a being in who defines relationship, because he always exists that way. Whereas in Islam, he had to create us to exist in relationship. He needed us for that. And I don't think it's a God who is great. I think a God who is great is the God who is the Trinitarian God, mm -hmm. who doesn't need us at all, who always exists that way and creates us out of his selfless, boundless love. And it also comes down to a crucifixion. I mean, this is one of the big problems with the Quran, not even establish it to the Trinity, but when the Quran talks about the Trinity, it gets the very definition of a trinity wrong by... Yeah, tw twice, in fact. <laughs> yeah. And when it talks about Jesus, you have a denial that Jesus died on the cross. And it's easy thing. Why should I trust the Quran if I can't even trust this basic historical fact? Well, you're right. You're, you're pointing out that the, the chapter 4, verses 157 to 158 of the Quran, mm -hmm. where it says, They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them as if it was so. And the, the, the most common interpretation of that is that Jesus, that a crucifixion event did happen, but it was not Jesus. It was someone else made to look like Jesus on that cross. And theories run from it was Judas Iscariot who was made to look like him, to Simon of Cyrene, all the way to a young disciple of Jesus who volunteered to take Jesus' place on the cross to save Jesus from the torture. Which, by the way, is horribly ironic when you think about it. Islam has someone else substituting for Jesus on the cross when the, when the gospel tells us that he was on the cross for us. Mm -hmm. um, exactly the opposite. But you're right. The historical claim, no one who studies, who, who believes uh, in a historical Jesus, and that's by far the most, most scholars, save for a few fringe folks, uh, no one who studies the historical Jesus denies that he died on a Roman cross at the hands of Pontius Pilate at the behest of the Jewish leaders. 
No one denies this. Only the Quran does. Mm -hmm. So if you can't get this, this is the most important fact. This is the most basically known fact about the historical Jesus. How could it get this wrong? Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's an important thing to point out to our Muslim friends is that it has to. Uh, this is a, this is an important fact. In fact, you have a lot of Muslim apologists now, like Shabir Ali, for example, who will say, "No, he was crucified," and I can. And they try to interpret the Quran to say that he was crucified, because they know the, the serious problems that their their position used to used, used to face. Mm -hmm. And with regards to Trinity, it's got <clears throat> the wrong definition. Yeah. Twice, which you think you know, even if a Trinity was wrong, I would think that. The very message of God would at least get the belief right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, what, what happens in the Quran is, is it, in one place it says uh, it has God talking to Jesus, and it says, "I will ask Jesus, did he, did I ever tell you to worship, uh, to tell people to worship you and your mother as gods besides me?" And Jesus says, "Of course not. I've never said such a thing." Well, neither, I, I I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. He never, said, he, he never said that either. Mm -hmm. um, no Christian has ever believed that the Trinity includes God, Jesus, and Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, now, maybe there was some really weird sect in Arabia that thought that, but Orthodox Christianity never claimed that. In other words, the Quran is attacking a hill that no one is defending. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, also, the Quran also says, forbear and say not three, that God is one of three in a Trinity. Well, no one believes that. No, no Christian believes that God is one of three in a trinity. God, Christians believe that God is a trinity. Mm -hmm. Not that he's one of three, three other beings in a trinity, that he is the trinity itself. Mm -hmm. So even when it comes close, it still gets it wrong. Yeah. So what it me is the best piece of advice, then, overall, when dealing with Muslims and interacting with them to get them to Christ? Uh, two things. One is to make sure you have a, a very, very uh, well-stored-up patience. This takes a long time. It took me nine years. took Nabil like five years. I think the statistics are that it takes an average of about three years of steady witness to get a, to get a Muslim to commit to Christ um, if they're sincere. And the second thing to keep in mind uh, is that you need to keep the main thing the main thing. Many Muslims will rabbit trail all over the place. When you begin to pin them down on one thing, they go to another thing. Because they, they see your arguments are getting a little too good, and they might go somewhere else for that. And they, the, the reason is because they need to. They need to go somewhere else yeah. because they can't be wrong on this. And if they're wrong, then everything changes, and that's too costly of a, of, of a burden. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to artfully steer them and say, let's stay on the Trinity for a while. Let's stay on the Bible for a while and not go on rabbit trails. Okay. Well, we're coming to the end of our show, and I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on. It's been a fascinating discussion. Hopefully we can do something like this again sometime. But uh, if, uh, if people have been listening, though, and they'd like to find out some more about you and what you do and such, do you have a website or a blog or a place that they can go to to get more information? Absolutely. They can go to embracethetruth.org. We have a blog on there. There's a blog tab at the top. Um, tons of free resources and uh, understanding of who we are uh, that book us for various events as well. Embracethetruth.org. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm there right now. There's a whole lot of information here. It's something, something that I think you all should check out. And how can they listen to your show? Um, it's available if they're in the Detroit area. It's on AM fifteen hundred at on ten thirty mm -hmm. uh, on Saturday mornings. 
but uh, worldwide, and I think the next day after the show, uh, if you go to faithtalk1500.com, it plays worldwide. But it's also live streaming at that same that, that same uh, station, faithtalk1500.com. And we're going to be trying to get this show up as soon as we can. I'm still working on last week's show, even, because I'm, I'm a technological idiot with these kinds of things. Don't know how to do this too well. Well, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking on Amazon also, and your book, The Grand Central Question, answering a critical concerns and major world views. If anyone's interested in buying it, the Kindle edition is nine thirty nine, and it looks like a paperback is fourteen fifty six. And if they go to our website, Nick, they can get two for twenty five dollars. Nice. Well, um, we've got maybe about three and a half minutes or so left in the show. Is there any final message you'd like to leave my audience? Uh, absolutely. You know, um, Nick, these, these issues, uh, first of all, I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation immensely. I hope we can do it again in the future. I hope um, so, too. Uh, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, if we can stick, if we can find out who it is we're talking to and what is their major concern, we can get a lot, lots of headway. A lot of apologists use First Peter 3.15 as their sort of token verse or their, or, their, or their main verse for how to do apologetics, which says, of course, to, um, uh, always, to offer a, a reason for the hope that we have within us, but do that with gentleness and with respect. And, and I, I, I wholeheartedly endorse that, um, that sentiment. But, you know, I, I've switched my verse to Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6, when Paul says to always be careful how we walk toward outsiders, uh, making the best use of the time, letting our speech be seasoned with salt and gracious, so that we may know how to answer each person. And that's key for me. When Paul says person, uh, he, 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 he tells us something. As apologists, as Christian ambassadors for Christ, we're not in the question-answering business. We are in the people-answering business. Questions don't need answers. People need answers to their questions. And if we recognize that, then we'll be able to see the people for who they are, what their concern is, and sometimes we can see the question behind the question. We can see the angst that causes the question or causes the doubt. And if we can reach them on a personal level uh, and use apologetics to clear away all the debris so they can see the cross, then, then that we're all the better for it. So we need to focus on people, not just questions, but people, because they're the ones who have the questions in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating time. I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have James K. Dew Jr. and Mark Foreman talking about how do we know. But I do thank you so much for being my guest this week. Nick, it's been a pleasure and a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. And for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off until next time.